he was going to be flopping about while they did their thing at the pool. So we decided to go up and spend a few days in Jackson Hole, uh, one of our favorite places for both of us, really. We lived there for a while back in the 70s. And uh, it helped me with my perspective. Always I am helped and encouraged and strengthened when I can go out in the creation that God made and especially the majestic parts of it and uh, see what He has created and marvel at it. And uh, in this time of grieving and distress that I've been going through, it certainly was a help to get away for a bit and just enjoy the the things in God's creation. So uh, while that was good, I'm glad to be back here and get back to work with things that are important. So uh, that's why I was absent last week. And it was good time, good to spend some time with Brett and his family as well. Uh, don't get to do that very often. I hope that we are keeping in mind and watching carefully. Uh, who knows what by the end of this summer and early fall may transpire. Uh, things are looking pretty grim in many, many aspects in the world. And uh, we know that God is going to begin doing His work, even as Satan does His work. And uh, actually, what Satan is going to do is part of God's work. Uh, he only allows him to do what he intends for him to do. But we have some very, very dramatic events coming up in the near term. Whether that begins this summer or we have... One more year to wait. I don't see, looking at events that must occur, if we at all have a comprehension of where we are in time, how it could go beyond one more year. But it could be that this is a year that it all begins to happen in a more dramatic fashion. I mean, we've got a lot of things going downhill in the nation and the world already as we see bad news come from everywhere. I saw an article just yesterday, in fact, that said <clears throat> the FDA has now uh, approved Monsanto injecting into the crops Roundup, not just mixing it or putting it on the seeds, but actually genetically modifying the plants to contain Roundup as an insecticide. So the grains and the foods that you have offered to you from now on, uh, are going to have a carcinogenic, cancer-causing gene actually put inside them. So uh, things get worse day by day, and I hope we keep that in mind, because the only hope is the kingdom of God. And that's the first thing that Christ tells us to pray for once we address the sovereignty and the greatness of God in the model prayer, is thy kingdom come. And that should be the prayer mostly on our lips above everything else because that's the only answer to the problems that we see around us and that we are a part of. Let's go back to the book of Ecclesiastes today. Uh, we got down to chapter 4, uh, even though I uh, detoured from this to give a sermon on possible time, the possible time we're in with a chart that 
may or not be may or may not be accurate. We'll see. But uh, then we had a tape last week with me gone, so I want to get back to this and see if we can get on through it, uh, and then move on to other things. So Ecclesiastes four is where we left off, and as a brief review, we have to understand that Solomon wrote this book. Uh, <coughs> essentially with human existence apart from God in mind, although he alludes to God uh, sometimes and his conclusions include God. At the same time, he's looking at life from a human standpoint and what there is there and the futility of it all apart from God. So in chapter 4, he says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. So he looked around at what was going on in the nation, the world, and he was a world traveler and sent ships all over the world. So he had a, and had people coming to his area, his kingship here, uh, off and on, so he had a pretty good idea of what was going on in the world. And he saw a lot of oppression, even as we see oppression today. The United States of America being the greatest oppressor on earth. We start wars and fight wars around the world regularly. And no one else does that. We are the greatest oppressors on earth. That may be a little hard for Americans who think we're the land of the free and home of the brave to comprehend, but it's the truth. We are the biggest nightmare for the entire world. No wonder we're not liked. So when we talk about oppression, we have to comprehend that we are at the seat of oppression. And in that sense, we are part of the oppressor. Uh, we need to bear that in mind. Even though emotionally we may not feel that way, we're a part of a nation that oppresses the world. And our own people are being oppressed more and more and more by what scientists and politicians are doing so that our freedoms are being removed and that happening more and more rapidly all the time. We have a sense of freedom in that we can still travel, we can still move around, and yet at the same time, uh, we don't even have freedom of thought as much as we think we do, because our minds are programmed by television and internet and movies, and uh, they coach us into thinking certain ways. And we have to fight through that, and not be an oppressor, and not go along with the system that is out there in terms of our minds our hearts and our emotions. They are with God. <clears throat> so anyway, he looked at the oppressions that were going on, and we can do the same. We can see how we pick fights with other nations and how we are part of a very big oppression machine. And the mayhem and misery and suffering and death and disease that America is spreading around the world. He said, And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. On, on an international level, what comforter do people have when America comes in and starts bombing their country and their cities? They have no answer. They have no one to go to. 
Are we surprised then when they cause terrorism uh, in Europe and here, and it will get worse? They're just fighting back against what is being done to them. But they have no comforter, so they try to do what they can to hurt those who are oppressing them. We deserve everything we get, brethren, in this nation. And the church has deserved everything it got. And you know what? When we began to be oppressed by those in charge of the church, uh, where could we turn? We do have a comforter, and we can go to God. And that's exactly why he allowed that to happen, because so would, we would turn to the only one who can comfort. And essentially, we're the only ones on earth who have a comforter. The rest of the world is in a false religion, and uh, they, can't, they have nowhere to go. So, on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. So, looking at the misery around us, the misery in us, uh, all the things that we fight day in and day out, he says you're better off dead than you are living. Uh, that's hard to comprehend in one sense. I, I prefer to be alive rather than dead. And yet, on the other hand, look at what we deal with on a, on a personal, uh, national, and international level. And with primarily and mostly with Satan, the devil, and his demons who try to get us to go wrong ways and think wrong things. So in one sense, we're better off dead than alive. We have a little cemetery up here, and I think that essentially those who are there uh, have it made, and they already have no pain or fear or insecurity or death. Uh, they have no consciousness and yet we still fight the daily fight uh, to stay above depression and frustration and despair and loneliness and all the things that we deal with. Uh, so I don't think we ought to all volunteer to go up and get buried, but at the same time, uh, we have a fight to fight. So he was analyzing that and understanding that once your life is done, and uh, you get out of the frustrations of being a human being, you're better off than the ones that are still alive. Yes, better is he than both they which has not yet been, not even been born, uh, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun, because those that are being born are going to see the things that we already deal with and that those who are already dead have already dealt with. So he says, yes, better is he than both they, which has not yet been, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. So, life on this earth, since Adam and Eve, has essentially been a hard row to hoe. And that's simply what he is recognizing here. Uh, we all have our 70 years plus or minus uh, in general, to live on this earth and to experience what we experience so that for most in the second resurrection, they can look back and say, that was not a good way to live. There must be something better 
And someone will say, this is the way, walk in it. And you can be blessed and your life will not be miserable and hurtful and frustrating and violent uh, like those who lived before you. So, or that you lived when you were there before the second resurrection. A time of calling. So God did this on purpose so that we might recognize that the human frame is not a good one. Uh, it just isn't. No matter what you do to try to make life on this earth utterly pre- pre- pleasant, you fail. Uh, those who have everything that you could possibly dream of or imagine also fail and have their burdens. So he says again in verse 4, I considered all travail and every right work. I looked at the hard times, uh, the bad things, and I looked at every good work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. <clears throat> so he says, even when you do good, when you fight against your nature and the travail that is around you, and you do good, uh, then people envy you and are jealous of you. And when people are envious and jealous, you feel it, don't you? Uh, because it isn't a good vibe. And uh, they have attitudes toward you and so on. So even doing good has its downside in this life. We can lay up treasure in heaven and know that there's a better life ahead, but uh, he says this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. It's, it's only temporary, and the travail we have, and even the good things we go through and do, end. And that's the end of it. So if there's nothing else other than this life, uh, it's only futility. Temporary, and then over, and done and gone, and that's the end of it. So then he says, the fool folds his hands together and eats his own flesh. Somebody becomes inward and thinking primarily of themselves, and they eat themselves up emotionally, spiritually, and perhaps even in physical things, because their mind is on themselves. So he folds his hands together. He's not doing anything for anybody else. Uh, He's just trying to take care of himself. And that doesn't work either because you just gnaw upon yourself. Being inward, being self-centered, you destroy yourself. You chew on yourself. You eat yourself is what he's saying here. You destroy that which you are if you're all about self. So then he says, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. It's better to not even have much and be able to live in peace and quietness than to have much and have all kinds of ups and downs and ins and outs and troubles uh, and vexation to deal with. And people who have usually have travail and vexation because of the way others treat them and trying to get what they got. So, better peaceful with very little than the turmoil that comes with having much. And it does create turmoil. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. 
It's just all temporary. It doesn't last. That's what vanity means. It's, it's something that is of really no value. Uh, how much good is vanity, let's say when we're young and we're so impressed with our good looks or our musculature or our, in, our, edu- or our, our uh, intelligence or whatever our talents, whatever it is that we think we have that is so good, uh, it doesn't last. It goes away. And those of us, as we age, begin to realize that we're not as pretty as we once were, we're not as strong as we once were, and we don't have as good of memories, and our intelligence begins to lapse, and we get old and bent and gray and wrinkled and tired, and uh, go back to the dust we came from. That's just the way life is. It's just vanity. It's here and then gone from a purely human perspective. He says, there is one alone, and there is not a second. So he says, consider someone who's by himself. Doesn't have anybody else. Yes, he has neither child nor brother. Uh, No one to be close to, uh, just basically existing uh, in a vacuum by himself in that sense. Yet there is no end of all his labor. So you can be alone, and yet... I mean, you don't have somebody else you're dealing with. You don't have other frustrations that come from uh, being around other people. You can be self-contained and be alone. And yet, that isn't good either because you still have to work to support and supply even for yourself. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. So, yeah, you can be alone and not have any dependents uh, or those around, and yet... If you use your energy to attain riches, that doesn't satisfy you either. Neither says he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good. This is also vanity, temporary. Yes, it is a sore travail. Why why do I work? Why do I go through what I go through and there's no one else that I can share it with or enjoy it with? Uh, those of you who've lost mates understand that. Uh, suddenly it's a whole different world without the memories you shared together. With the life you lived, uh, you're by yourself. And it's only you. Uh, which is a very, very difficult situation. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And that's the point he was leading up to. Uh, Just going it alone is not much fun uh, because there's no sharing, there's no caring, there's no giving. uh, And you're by yourself and that becomes difficult. And two doing things together have the reward of satisfaction that they can share together with each other. And uh, that's a good thing. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. Uh, marriage helps us experience and learn that. When one is down, the other can help them and encourage them, and vice versa. But woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. It's to get up all on his own. 
and that uh, isn't always easy. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? Get lots of blankets and wrap your arms around yourself, I guess. <laughs> but it's not optimal. It's better to have someone you can share the, the warmth and cuddle with, and, and not only physical warmth, but emotional warmth. Uh, that is, as long as the emotion is warm. And if you don't do things God's way, then the emotion becomes hot, uh, and it isn't so good anymore. Two together in peace is good. Two together in war is hell on earth. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, no man is an island, no man stands alone, and we need each other. And if we do not have family in the church, for instance, we have each other. And God says that those that he calls and puts together in the spiritual family are our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. So we need to interact with each other as a family, and the spirit should be stronger than blood. I've said that many times, because God instructs us that at some point we have to leave those who have not been called and converted, uh, even though they may be blood family. He says, you may be required to give up father, mother, brother, sister, lands, homes, and everything to come and follow me. And I think almost invariably we in the church have given up physical family in order to become a part of a spiritual family. And we have just as much responsibility, actually more, to make sure that our spiritual family is functional, not dysfunctional. People will go to great pains to make their physical family functional, to get along with their blood relatives. But sometimes we have difficulty putting forth the same effort of our spiritual family. And uh, we need to pay attention to that, <clears throat> because God expects us to live together peaceably. So a two and a threefold cord is not quickly broken, and a tenfold cord is even harder to break. Uh, so we need to help each other, lean upon each other, strengthen each other as much as we possibly can, and make it family. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king. Uh, he was an example of one who had, in some respects, become an old and foolish king. Uh, he had retained his wisdom through all the experimentation that he had done, and yet, on the other hand, uh, he had done a lot of things that cause human negative emotion and difficulty. And having experienced those things, he had become jaded and frustrated with the human frame. And that's, that's why he's writing this is that he had been through so much, and he had seen travail, and he had observed it in others, and he realized that, you know, all the things that I've done didn't ultimately make me happy. So he said, a, a, a little kid who's got some wisdom uh, and hasn't made the same mistakes that Solomon had is better off than an old foolish king. 
who will no more be admonished. You know, you can get to a point in age where talking to you is like talking to a brick wall. Uh, you're set in your ways. Uh, you've done what you've done. You've formed your attitudes. And nobody's going to tell you what to do any more than a young person wants to be told what to do because you're old and you know better than anyone else. So, uh, we get to the point we will not listen. Our vanity, our pride, our selfishness gets in our way, and uh, we just don't want to change. We don't want to be different. The saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, uh, has some merit in that human beings get set in their ways and they don't want to change. And yet, I've seen the Spirit of God act in people 70, 80, 90 years old when they are first called to His truth who do make some major changes in their whole approach to life and their approach to diet and other people and uh, life in general who will make those changes because the Spirit of God is working through them. So, again, he's writing this from a physical human standpoint apart from the real comforter and the Spirit of God, <clears throat> which should make us humble and meek so that even in old age we don't think we know it all and nobody can tell us anything. But Solomon recognized that in himself, obviously. For out of prison he comes to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becomes poor. So, he himself had created a prison for himself because of the emotional damage that had been done to him uh, with the sins and the uh, wrong type of experimentation that he had done. Uh, he suffered penalties from that and no longer was able to rule in the way that he would wish to and it reverberated out to those in his kingdom. So if you get to be an old foolish person, uh, realize that it is going to affect others who are in your uh, center of influence. I considered all the living which walk under the sun, everybody, man, woman, and child, with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. In other words, we all get replaced by somebody else who comes along. People get old and die. New babies are born to take their place. There is no end of all the people, even of all them that have been before them. They just keep turning them out, and then those get old and die, and some more come along. They that also <clears throat> that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this is also futile and a vexation. So, you know, you live, you die, the kids that come along after you, they do their life, they're considered on what they're doing, and they don't spend an awful lot of time thinking about you who are dead and gone. So, from a purely physical human standpoint, uh, once you go under, you're gone. That's all there is to it. And you might have wife or husband or your children who uh, are affected more by it, and uh, a mate more even than children, because they have their lives ahead of them, but a mate had almost lived theirs, and they're gone. 
<clears throat> so there's nothing permanent. Not in this life. We better be looking at something else bigger and better than this life. Here's some really good instruction then in chapter 5. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Watch where you step. Place your feet carefully. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not they that do evil. So he says, when you come before God, before the house of God, before those who are in charge of it, and other people who are there, be prepared to be careful where you step and what you do, and be more ready to listen than to talk. Now, that's anti-human, I understand. We would rather express our opinions and our feelings than listen to somebody else's feelings and opinions. How many times do you see someone getting fidgety and nervous when someone else is talking and start breaking into the conversation or finding a place where they can say what they have to say rather than listening to someone else? We've all done it, I'm sure, uh, a multitude of times. Because what we have to say is certainly important. And it has to be more important than that person who's talking because we're smarter and more intelligent and have more experience and have something more important to say than what they do, obviously. I'm being a bit sarcastic. You, I hope, see that. And he follows that up by saying, Be not rash with your mouth. Be very, very careful with your mouth. Read the book of James. See if that doesn't carry over to the New Testament. Uh, no man can control the tongue entirely, but we better be working at it. We sure better be working at it. Let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. We might have a burning issue in our heart and mind that we just feel has to get out there. But he says, wait a minute, stop, check, think, consider, analyze, and be careful what you say, because God hears every word. He sees and comprehends every thought, for that matter. Ponders the heart, not just the tongue. So, the things that you're thinking, God is aware of. If He numbers a hair on your head, then He certainly is more concerned about your thoughts, your heart, your mind, your tongue, than He is your hair. I mean, after you're completely, totally bald, your thoughts and your heart and your mind and your emotions are still there. So, realize that God is listening to those things. And we have to be very careful with our mouths. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. He's already said, be more ready to listen than to talk. You have one mouth and two ears. So I think the ratio there shows you you ought to listen at least twice as much as you talk. Maybe more, but just that ratio alone. For an imagination comes through the multitude of business. Not dreams per se here. That's probably not a very good translation. Yeah, we might dream dreams at night, but he's talking, I think, more about 
uh, how we get busy, busy, busy with this, with that, with the other thing. We have our finger in this pie and that pie, and uh, we like to do this, do that, influence this, manipulate people. Uh, so these imaginations, these thoughts, these fantasies come through the multitude of our thoughts, of all the businesses, all the things that we allow to go through our mind that uh, really aren't productive. So he says that a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. You see someone who is always expressing an opinion, always full of advice, always wanting to control and manipulate things, and uh, you're looking at a fool. That's just the bottom line. Because God is in heaven and we are on this earth, and we are far, far, far inferior to God. Uh, And... You know, a lot of our, a lot of that is our own inferiority complexes. We act superior because we feel inferior. And we've got to impress people that we're okay and that we're superior. And that becomes uh, a problem because of our own inadequacy and feelings of, of inadequacy and inferiority. Well, that's the wrong way to deal with our inferiority. You do realize, do you not, why you feel inferior? It's because you're inferior. Just don't get a complex about it. We all have to recognize our inferiority, and that was the big deal with Job. He had to recognize how inferior he was in comparison to God. And then to deal with that by honoring, respecting, and worshiping God not going around trying to prove to everybody else that he wasn't inferior. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that is a great trap that we fall into as human beings. I mean, no matter how vain and proud we are, we recognize to some degree our inadequacies and our inabilities. We can't help but because <laughs> we... We all just have faults and weaknesses and areas that we're not strong, or areas that we uh, can't control. Our emotions, our tempers, our feelings, our reactions, our tongues. So deep down inside, even the most vain and proud uh, recognize their own inferiorities to some degree. And then they try to override that by showing others that they're superior to them. Now, what a futility that is. And that was part of the by-play with uh, Job and his friends. They were all trying to impress each other with their great wisdom and their answers, and how they were the ones that were the smart ones. So there was a, there was a serious problem there with Job and with his friends. I don't know whether the friends ever wised up or not, but Job did when God showed him how inferior he was. Now, when we recognize how inferior we are, there is the problem of trying to compensate and compensate in ways that are not productive. Where we compare ourselves among ourselves, for instance, or we try to show that we are superior to someone else 
in whatever way we express it. Uh, be aware of that, because that becomes then an inferiority complex. It becomes, what's a complex? It's a complexity. It's something that becomes so involved and difficult that it's very complex. And yet life should be fairly simple in many respects. If we do what we're supposed to and we have the attitudes we should have, then we can have a handful with quietness instead of vexation and trouble, as he described earlier. So, yes, recognize I am inferior. You know, I run into human beings here and there in life, and have all my life, that I have recognized were a lot smarter than I am. Have you ever run into anybody smarter than you? Probably daily, whether you recognize it or not. But we are limited in our intellect, we're limited in our memories, we're limited in our emotional capacity to handle various things. We are... There, any, anywhere you look, you're going to find people who have more maturity, more emotional control, more smart, better memories, uh, all kinds of things that are superior to us. Now, what we do with that is critical. So don't try to hide the fact that you're inferior. Admit it. That's what Job had to do. God, I am inferior. Now I come to you to give me the strength, the power, the direction, the help, the encouragement to become like you so that someday I can be superior instead of inferior. That's what the publican had to feel when he looked down and couldn't even look up at God. I'm a sinner, I'm inferior, I have weaknesses, I have trouble. How can I even look up at the one who has all power, who is all intelligent? And that's the comparison we need to be making. Compare yourself to God, recognize your inferiority, and don't try to prove to everybody else how smart you are and how superior you are. Just live with the fact that you don't measure up to what God is. That's what counts. I'm not what God is. So comparing ourselves among ourselves is not only unwise, it is foolish. Because all it does is create trouble. Because people don't... When you compare yourself to others, you usually put them on a lower plane than yourself. And then that frustrates them. So an inferiority complex affects a lot of people. Uh, and in a detrimental way. So, we need to be very careful what we say and listen more. You don't learn a thing when you're talking. You learn a lot when you're listening. When you vow a vow, verse 4, to God, defer not to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. We made a vow, a covenant with God, when we were baptized and submitted to His power, and we had better live up to that commitment. Don't let it fall by the wayside. Don't let it get choked out. Don't let others influence us to the point that we get discouraged and give up. Don't be Laodicean. Be zealous. Uh, seek God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. 
we made a commitment to God and a vow to God. And when we sin, and in that sense turn from God, we're breaking that vow. We make wedding vows. And in various manners and ways, uh, whether physically or not, we make mistakes and do things that do damage to that relationship in the vows that we took. And we do the same with God. He wants to love us, and yet we become unlovable. And in a physical marriage, that is a very difficult situation when one or both of the mates, because of attitudes, sins, transgressions, words of the mouth, make ourselves unlovable to our mate. And we are to be the bride of Christ. So be aware, be aware of the things that you do that make you unlovable to God. I mean, that's what marriage, human marriage, is all about, is an example of what we should be with Christ. So if we have any loyalty or concern, it is greater with Him than a physical bride or groom. But the physical needs to reflect the spiritual. Verse 6, Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. We talk ourselves into corners and create problems for ourselves primarily with our mouth. And uh, mouth is probably the hardest thing there is to control. And it's supposed to be controlled by the brain, and the brain is actually harder to control than the mouth because the mouth just says what the brain thinks. So it really goes back to your mind. But the reaction is through the mouth. Neither say you before the angel that it was an error. It was a mistake. Uh, I did it by accident. All the excuses we have. We vow a vow to God to live His way. And then when we don't, we make excuses. Don't do that. Just straighten up. We find all kinds of ways to dismiss ourselves from it. It was somebody else's fault. They caused me to sin. They mistreated me. They abused me. No. You know, most of our problems are self-inflicted. They truly are. In one form or another, most of the trouble we have is brought on us by ourselves. And it is a very poor excuse before God or His angels or His messengers to come and blame it on somebody else. No. It's yours. Own it. Buy it. Live it. Accept it. Fix it. That's what we have to do. Anytime you try to blame your problems on somebody else, you're not going to get them fixed. They will continue. They won't get any better. Because you don't own it, you don't accept responsibility for it, it's always somebody else's fault, and therefore you don't have to overcome it because it's their fault. No. Your life before God, you will be judged by. And you're not going to be able to stand and say, Oh Lord, it was so-and-so's fault. He won't buy it. He just won't buy it. 
everything in your life, essentially, is your responsibility and therefore your fault. And the quicker we can accept that, the better we'll, better chance we'll have of overcoming and growing. Anytime you can defer or put off or pass off responsibility, uh, the less you're going to do to fix it. <clears throat> so, don't make an excuse. Wherefore, should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He says, if you excuse yourself in some or any way and don't take responsibilities, you're going to anger God because you have to live your life before God and you will answer. Ezekiel made it very clear. A man does not have to answer for his son's conduct and his son does not have to answer for his own con- his, his father's conduct. We all answer for what we did, and it doesn't make any difference who may have influenced you. It was still your call. You know, you can get around peers who are not living right, around people, and yes, they may influence you to do something wrong, but it was still your decision. It wasn't their fault. My wife used to get me on that one. I'd say, well, you fixed too good a food. You'd say, I don't bend your arm. Maybe it is good, but you're the one that has to control how much of it you eat. It comes back to personal responsibility. If I was eating too much, it wasn't her fault. I'm thankful it was good food. Now, I had the responsibility of portion control. That wasn't her problem. That was my problem. And it shows. So, don't make excuses to God. You might find yourself destroyed. Verse 7, For in the multitude of the imagination of the human mind, and many words, there are also different vanities. But fear God. Fearing God is the key. That's the very beginning of wisdom. The first thing, the first item in coming to have wisdom is truly fearing God. That's the beginning of true intelligence, is fearing God because He's the one that can give eternal life beyond the futility and the vanity of this human existence, which, is, which comes and goes. Some only live a few minutes, a few hours, a few days. Some live 70, 80, 90 years these days, or even a little more. But then it's gone, no matter how old you were. So fear God, because He holds the key to the future. And therefore fear His Word, because that's the way He lives. And if we live His way, then we'll live forever. If we don't live His way, we'll be burned up and forgotten. That's just the way it is. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are vanities, fear God. If you see the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in the province, as we see around us today, uh, the laws of God, the constitution of our country, all of that is being totally ignored by those in charge today. So they pervert judgment. And it says that, where is it? In the major prophets is a place that says... uh, there is no judgment in the land. They're sick from head to foot. 
judgment is gone. People go by their own attitudes. Judges make up their mind based on their liberalism or their conservatism, but they don't go by the law. They don't go by the Constitution. That's the world we live in. And we see perversion of judgment. Marvel not at the matter. <laughs> don't be impressed by that. Uh, it's always been. For he that is higher than you, or is higher than the highest, regards, and there be higher than they. So, uh, at whatever level you see oppression and misuse of justice and judgment, realize there's somebody above them, and then ultimately there is God, who is the highest of the high. And He is the one we need to be considering and not worrying about all that we see around us because it is going to be perverted and wrong. Uh, and we have to be willing to depart from that which is perverted and wrong. Remember Lot's wife. Uh, she was, to one degree or another, happy where she was. Now, there was perversion going all on all around her. But you tell people today that you're living in a perverted, upside-down, sin-sick, godless, satanic world, and you need to get out of it, leave the cities and leave the world's entertainment, and go and serve God out in the wilderness somewhere, and they'll all think you're nuts. But you're not. We have to look to the highest and what he would have of us. I don't know what there was about Sodom and Gomorrah that impressed Lot's wife to the point she didn't want to leave. But there was something there that held her. And a pillar of salt was the result of that. What is it in this world that we don't want to turn loose of? Just what is it that is so precious to us that we can't give it up? People all have something, it appears. What is it? Moreover, verse 9, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Uh, what God put here, the crops, the fruits, the vegetables, the animals, is for everybody. And the king also has to eat those things from the field. He's not above it. He doesn't have something that's just for him. He that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Whatever we like, whatever we want, whatever our hobby, our habit, our interest in life will not satisfy us. Because there's what else? What more? Because if we lust or covet for something, the result of lust and covetousness is never profitable whatever it be. Nor he that loves abundance with increase. People who want wealth, want to be rich, will never be satisfied with it because the eye is never filled with seeing or the ear with hearing or the hand with getting. It just isn't. Because it tends, if the hand gets, it tends to get greedier. If the eye sees, it wants to see more. Uh, that's just the way the human mind and emotion works. So if you think you could, if you could just have this, whatever it is that is so impressive to you, if you could just have this, you would be happy and be satisfied. 
No, you would not. Does marrying the girl of your dreams please you so much that you would never, ever look at another woman with interest or a man with interest? No. Does getting a raise in your paycheck mean that you're now satisfied, that you would never, ever want another raise, that you're happy now? No, you always want another raise. On and on it goes. Whatever it is you desire, you would never be satisfied. That is the human case. And the influence of Satan is always there because he was given such great power as an archangel and in the kingdom of God was one of the leading beings under the Father and the Son. But he wasn't pleased. He wanted more. He wanted to be totally in charge. And he's miserable and unhappy today, but he hasn't given up his desire to be in charge. And he's going to fight God again until he is fully deposed. And the human mind is very similar to Satan's mind by nature. Verse 11, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. If you eat too much, you get greater. And I don't mean greater in influence or intellectuality, I mean bigger. And what good is there to the owners thereof, <coughs> saving the beholding of them with their eyes? <coughs> you can only eat so much and remain healthy. So what good is having extra and more than you can eat? What good does it do you? Remember the guy who had his barns full? <clears throat> decided that he'd be happier if he tore them all down and built bigger barns and filled them up. Didn't work. All you can do is look at it, and then you begin to worry that somebody's going to get it. And then you're in deeper trouble. How many billionaires have pulled out of every money-making business they have because they have enough money? Doesn't happen. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not allow him to sleep. Man labors, works with his hands, makes a living, eats or doesn't have quite enough to eat, but he's tired and he goes to sleep at night. But those who have something become worry warts for fear they'll lose it or somebody will take it. So they lie awake worrying about their wealth. Who's better off? The guy that's sleeping peacefully or the guy that's up worrying? <clears throat> Should I? I was in the stock market for a little bit about close to 50 years ago, a very short while. And uh, I found that life began to revolve around whether I was up a quarter or down an eighth today. And uh, you were either impressed or discouraged based on whether you got a tick up or a tick down. And I thought, that becomes futile. I heard uh, a little interview with Kenny Rogers, the singer, recently. And uh, they asked him about gambling because of his song about the gambler. And he says, no, that's more about life than it is about actual gambling. But they says, what about you? Do you gamble? He says, no. He says, I tried it. And he says, I could 
I couldn't win enough to excite me, but I could lose enough to depress me. <laughs> that was a, an excellent quote. Uh, the stock market's a gamble the same way. You can't win enough to really do well, but you can sure go down a quarter and get depressed. So I, I was in it for only a matter of months way back early in life, and I haven't bought a stock or a bond since. I don't intend to. Verse 13, there is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. They become possessive and selfish and greedy, and then their lives become remote and unhappy and frustrated because they can't interact with other people in the same way that they used to. So... uh, It doesn't matter in this life. There's no satisfaction anywhere. That's all there is. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Verse 14, But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begets a son, and there's nothing in his hand. Have a baby born, he doesn't have anything. And when he dies, he can't take it with him any more than you can. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. You know, there have been cultures in the past where pharaohs or Indian chiefs or whatever culture it was tried to do that. They would even have their animals killed, their wives killed, their children in some cases killed, and buried with them along with all their chariots and their horses and their gold and their silver and their wealth to try to take it with them. And not only were they dead, but everything that they had was dead along with them. (laughs) There's a futility there. You can't take it with you. You came out naked, and you'll go back naked, unless somebody has at least enough presence of mind to cover your ugly old body up. This is also a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he that is labored for the wind? You know, you work all your life trying to get wealthy and then you write a will and you hope it'll be done and then your kids or somebody protests it and it gets thrown out and and, uh, from the grave you can't control anything. You try to control it while you're alive, but you certainly can't control it when you're dead. So what good was it to work so hard to build up wealth and you go away naked when it's done? That's why treasure in heaven is important. See, this is written again from a physical standpoint. You and I have something that supersedes this. If we can build up treasure in heaven, it remains. It will always be there. And we can enjoy it throughout eternity. So instead of working so hard to be wealthy physically, people need to be working to be wealthy spiritually. Because that will last forever. Can we make that transition? Can we come to the point that the spiritual is far more important to us than the physical? I hope that we here have come to understand that, and most of our effort is into becoming spiritually wealthy. Because the physical wealth means nothing in the long run. That doesn't mean we should quit work and die of starvation. But what's the emphasis 
what is the emphasis in our life? All his days also he eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. So we become emotionally sick and heart sick and various things as a result of our working to make this life the utopia. No, make the next life utopia. No matter what you do, you cannot in this life get away from sorrow, pain, tears, and death. You can't get away from it. No matter how wealthy, no matter how smart, no matter whether you're on an island in the South Pacific with you and somebody you love and nobody else. You cannot escape those human things. Because if you're in an ideal situation, you're still going to get sick, and you're still going to get old, and you're still going to die. So the only hope is in an eternal existence without these human problems that we face. And God promises us that if we will put the spiritual first. 18. Behold that which I have seen. I've got it here. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Look at what I have seen, Solomon says. I've been through it all. I've done it all. I've seen every side of every coin. Here's what I've come up with. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the proceeds of his labor that he takes unto the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his portion. In other words, you work, you're paid, you have food, you have drink. Be satisfied. Desiring more, desiring greater, does what? It creates frustration. You wish you had it, you don't have it, so you're frustrated. In other words, be thankful for what you do have instead of lusting for what you don't have. Because getting what you don't have that you lusted after is not going to please you either. Not going to satisfy you. Be thankful for what you have is the bottom line here of what he's saying. Go through life, work, enjoy your food and your drink, sleep sweetly, and don't lust and seek and pursue in a vain way that which will will just simply feed your greed and make you more miserable. I've seen a lot of rich people who were still greedy and were frustrated. (laughs) You know? Be thankful. Be content. Every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth, and has given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. God's given you a certain amount. He's blessed you with it. Be thankful for it. Enjoy it. Love it. But don't lust and covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Thou shalt not covet. When we get in a lustful, desirous Seek, 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 want, want, want attitude, it destroys the peace. It's a gift of God to be given a living and to enjoy it and be thankful and content therewith. 
For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answers him in the joy of his heart. If we are able to be content with what we have, and that's New Testament as well, quoted there. Be content with what you have. Be thankful for what you have, not miserable because of what you don't have. And God will cause your heart to be peaceful and happy and joyous. Well, that's it for today.